The greatest thing from Quebec since Celine Dion and GSP. A pair of siblings. A couple of stellar young men. Two brothers. These two young men. Two siblings. The hard-hitting pair represent Canada. Welcome to Thinking Bros. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. We're your favorite corner store philosophers trying to figure out life one conundrum at a time. Today we're going to be talking about Neil Postman's The the End of Education, uh, specifically the first two chapters entitled Some Gods That Fail, being chapter two. Of course, and, you start by the second one. Yeah, and and the chapter one, The Necessity of Gods, obviously. And for the second one, I mean, I'll let Alex give context if he thinks it's necessary. I know you guys like con context usually, but I feel like here context isn't necessary. So I can just say on my side, let's just say I'm on Adolf's side. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, and most people are. Uh, so the second piece of literature we're analyzing is... Uh, what Histor historical... Historical... Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, I forgot. I don't have words yeah, right now. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> what is an emotion? Uh, which, I mean, uh, uh, honestly, it's just a transcription of an interview. Uh, but the two sides discussing are uh, Ralph Adolphs and uh, Lisa That's a normal, Feldman Barrett. normal name. Both normal names. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Yeah. Who are both emotion researchers. And, I mean, the name of the paper is What is an Emotion? But I don't think the paper is exactly about that. It's more general questions about emotions just uh yeah like what frame in which frameworks can we think about emotion in a certain way yeah exactly and uh i mean we see in this two different perspectives on the study of emotion and uh you're like most people in being with adults adults position is the the common one and i mean barrett's i, I don't know how you can even okay how but you can even do it beyond that right like everyone knows i'm unbiased so the fact that i disagree with her conception of emotion won't affect any of what I'm about to say. She seems like the most unpleasant person ever to be around, genuinely. Um, I mean, their disagreement sometimes felt confrontational in the middle, but at the end, she's like, I have the utmost respect for you, or you didn't read the end? Yeah, well, I, I read the end, okay. and it feels like she only says that because the other guy said it. <laughs> and what's also cool is that the other guy, like, the other guy is confrontational, and he's obviously holding the right side also. So... You know, Adolf's is holding the right side. So, um, obviously, at the end, when, you know, the... the So, basically, that they had an intermediary who who's a physicist, I think. And let's just say... Mladinov. He, he's a... He's a... Like, he's a brilliant, a brilliant question asker, I think. Genuinely. Like, yeah. he's asking the right questions. He's also aware of the research in the field of emotion, right. which is so right. surprising. Like, he's asking the right questions... On the scientist level, like on a, if if a third person that had to be like had to had knowledge of emotion and to be unbiased would have to be have to be in the conversation. That's what he's providing there. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, it's also only eight pages, so it's it's not, it's not that much that's happening. But again, it gets confrontational in the middle, and at the end, so Adolf concludes with this paragraph when when he's <clears throat> when the physicist tells him, okay, so you, you guys any have. Uh, you guys have any final thoughts? And he says, well, first of all, I think you've outlined a problem with my theory. Right. Second of all, I respect you and I, I love that we can have these conversations despite our disagreements. Then she just copies him on the compliment that she, he gave her and then doesn't say that there's a huge flaw with her theory. Like she doesn't acknowledge any part of it. She's like, there, there's even like a little bit of a, a gotcha part at, at, by the end of her paragraph where she says, um, like, and I'm glad you're like, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating in my head, but like, I'm glad you're acknowledging the weaknesses of your theory, something like that. Instead of saying, okay, mine also has problems, you know? I deeply admire open-mindedness and willingness to consider a range of scientific views. Exactly. But that, yeah, but no, that's neutral, bro. No, no, no. That's called meta-sociality. It's called, if you if you live on the level that I live on, which is called... You know, there's there are the words that come out of our mouths. Then there's what happens in our head. But then there's the meta, just the unconscious, yeah. Meta sociality <laughs> that is about the context of a conversation, meta, meta conversation. And yeah, I live there. I think when you know what she's saying. What's also included in the context that we don't really know of is 
is that Adolf is like really popular. He wrote the book on emotion and he has the popular opinion on his side. And Barrett is sort of like coming in there defending a new theory that isn't widely accepted. And so maybe we didn't see the two people interacting. Maybe in the interview, if they were filmed or if they were filmed, if we could look at the video, the dynamic is like Adolf is like calm and like no, uh, assumes he's right. And you know what I'm saying? Like, just like <laughs> we're ascribing so much to this conversation that probably yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't even have. It might have been like a series of emails, you know? That's true. And so to get into it, Adolf's theory of emotion is a functional one. And so he describes an emotion by what it does. So let's say fear can be described as the thing that makes you either freeze or, or, uh, or run away, right? And that makes it so it can also happen in, uh, in animals. You know, there's no reason for us to think that animals don't have emotions, uh, according to him. And as, as for Barrett, I'm not sure about the animal part, but she ascribes emotion to an ad hoc description we create uh, after having had the emotion. And so I think the main argument is every little instance of emotion we have is different from previous ones and will be different from future ones. So the fear I'm feeling now in this context is not going to be the same as the fear I'm feeling in the forest when a bear is chasing me. It's not exactly the same fear. And it bears a resemblance with the past fear, but it's not exactly the, the, the same fear. And so she basically argues that there's no basic things such as fear. And it's just that we have these states and then we ascribe fear to it because it resembles another one. And part of it is like social, the fact that other people do it. Things like Lisa, that. Lisa, Lisa. Well, the only question that I wanted both of them to ask was just, okay, <clears throat> when, where did the first fear come from? She's essentially saying it's a fully socially constructed concept essentially because what she's what she's saying is oh fear is just what you've been taught by your care caregivers that when you see a serpent it must be scary that's essentially what it is and okay. she doesn't give an account of the origin of it and she completely disregards the evolutionary use and origin i mean it can it can bear resemblance to another past fear but if it's I can understand how it's not the same fear every time. You can, you can sort of like be fearful and excited at the same time, and that's well. Yeah, you could argue it's just the activation of both systems at the same time. Emotions are complex. Like, yeah, that that's the bottom line. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And she she okay. So her biggest counter argument against the common functional, view, functional view, yeah, is that we're only inferring. We don't have access to the mind. We're only inferring what the animals is feeling. We're only inferring what others are feeling. Even patterns of activation in the brain don't really mean anything because we're ascribing that. To, we're just saying like, okay, well, let's define fear. Okay, that, that person is feeling fear. No, 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 no. You're inferring that they're feeling fear. And also fear doesn't really exist because it's been taught like something like that. And essentially... What I don't understand is that I think she's the one to quote Wittgenstein who says that words are defined by what keeps them company or something like that. Essentially, you know, everything's a social construct. Yeah. Like we, like we woke up to that. We, now we know that that's fine. We don't need a Descartian doubt of the disconnection between reality and what we're feeling. Like we're, we're past that. It feels like my, yeah, my biggest concern with it is I feel like I can relate to the, ad hocness of it because at some point someone started calling it fear and it could have been distinguished further like there could have been two types of fear where you're like oh a, a state of fear that's more severe or less severe you see what i'm saying like those categories could have been separated a bit differently i guess but generally i think it's right and also my biggest concern is how are you gonna make a science out of an infinite number of emotional states that you can just ad hoc create after. Like, what are you gonna study? A an emotion, an emotion researcher with Adolf's point of view can say, "Okay, I'm gonna study fear. Let's see how fear manifests." But with Barrett's, I'm not sure what you're gonna study at all. Like, 
every individual instance of every emotion. Like you can hunker down on one emotion state that one person had one time and study that to the end. I don't know. Exactly. Sure. I mean, I'm sure she has a method in place that kind of circumvent circumvents that, and it's probably useless to the, you know, the rest of the literature. But if everything she's saying is right, let's still go back and analyze what happened with time, right? Like what happened through evolutionary biology, which as a scientist, they probably both agree on, right? We developed before even being able to talk, aka when we were animals, more, more or less, well, we are animals, whatever, physiological and conscious reactions to our environment. They are adaptive and serve a specific purpose. Everything, there's the example of the fruit fly that is scared of a predator and for some reason doesn't fly away, walks away, <laughs> just to mm. keep the parallel between the it and the human. I just imagined it with two big paws. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, and, okay. And so every reaction to something that might be threatening, we now call fear. But it's, that's also not the case, right? There, we also have like anxiety, uh, as long as it's anticipatory and fear when we're already in the situation. Like the categories exist and they're already good. Like no one, well, I'm sure some nitty gritty scientists disagree on them, but whatever. Mm -hmm. It's really whatever. <clears throat> because socially, as we use them in 90% of cases, normally... We all agree on them and we have absolutely no problem. And it's like, well, is this happiness or joy? Is it persisting or acute? Whatever. Like, you yeah, guys yeah. deal with that? Scientists deal with that? Let's I, just study I feel happy. Stuff. I feel good. And that's all I need. Yeah. yeah. So my problem is, okay, we evolve these. Animals obviously have them because we evolved from animals and our physiological responses are the same as. But... When, uh, I'm pretty sure she kind of a little bit dodges the question when she's asked, do you think animals can feel emotions? And she says, well, obviously she says, well, we can infer they feel emotion emotions, maybe. And would you call it emotions? I mean, you call it something, whatever. And so we evolve these emotions, right? That are, oh, and also let's not confuse emotion and affect. That's fine, though. Like, I'm sure on a scientific level, it's it's the distinction is important. And we became more and more conscious of them. And obviously, we have this metacognition that we developed as humans that is more, you know, more sophisticated. And now we can analyze it and also acknowledge emotions, ignore them, choose to act on them, be affected by them, whatever. That's all a result of the development of consciousness. And then when we developed language we classified what already existed into useful categories that match our intuitions. Like this is one of the, it's like the time we talked about beliefs in, uh, in philosophy, right? It's the, if you had never started the conversation, there, there wouldn't be any problem whatsoever, mm. like to begin with, right? Like what's a belief? Uh, something that you hold to be kind of true, but you haven't maybe, whatever, right? Let's, let's read a 20-page paper and create a problem. Let's do it. So now, emotion is like, okay, my heart starts beating fast when I see a lion. Okay, I developed the language to think about that. I developed the consciousness and the, I don't know what you would call it, like the agency to ignore it mm. also, right? Because animals Emotional would, control. Exactly, because animals would, you know, I guess the theory is, act on their emotions anyway like okay the dog sees something during mating season really something anything it goes toward it just to say the least and so contrarily to me for example so the they have existed we've developed a sophisticated way of perceiving them and now suddenly we're doubting that they were evolutionarily created i mean you 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 seem to be playing devil's advocate here do you want to kind of reconcile that with that because it seems as though from what she's saying and from the way she speaks of its origin it's almost as though we we like the emotions everyone has now come essentially from socializing and being taught what they are and then just associating them with past instances of what we were taught like I don't get it. Well, my thing is just, I think why I'm playing devil's advocate is that I understand 
where she's coming from and she wants to be different yeah like you <laughs> and and i see how she, she's sort of like technically right every instance of emotion is not the same right technically that's true the the context modifies exactly the experience you have not exactly the same neurons fire every time whatever Technically, it's true, and I guess you could say that simply out of resemblance, even if it's a 97% resemblance between the, the past fear and the present fear, that's why we associate it, even though it's not the same. Like, technically, she's right, but I just really don't see the, the, the use for it. I really don't see why you would say that, why you would describe it like that. Exactly, because ultimately, if you take the functionalist view, like, we, I, I want to, I forgot what we learned in our class was the problem with the functionalist view i guess is it the interspecies we didn't look at it through the same thing what, what were we talking why were we talking about functionalism i think it's about mental states it was what well, okay. is the octopus example for that or not oh I, I think maybe okay so essentially one of the problems with the functionalist view as i remember it maybe correct me is that for example if you if all you're saying is that a mental state is defined by the input and the output, which is essentially right. Right, the output being the behavioral output, right, right. that's kind of the function. So if a human, for example, a human's heart starts beating fast and they get the freeze frame, please let me paint a mental picture portrait. Reaction. Uh, reaction that we all know to be true. The, the freeze... Freeze and run? What, what is it? Um, flight, fight or flight. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, in front of a predator. And then if an octopus gets the same thing and acts the same way and the heart and the all three hearts start beating faster <laughs> and then it swims away, I think what you would essentially be saying and would be problematic is that they're having the same thing. Or is that not a problem? To me, it doesn't seem like a problem. <laughs> In any, in any case, I forgot the, the problem with the functionalist view. It's obviously more right than whatever Barrett's got. But that's the thing, right? That's what categories are. Like, oh, this apple has a yellow spot and also a red spot. Would you dare call it an apple if it's so different? Yeah, it serves the same function, function of appleness in my mouth, right? Like, and it's, this is the thing, right? philosophy is pretty good at identifying instances of and maybe that's what it would take right a thought experiment where at first i might think it's one emotion but in analyzing it it might be another like philosophers are good at this right they're, they're saying okay here is what we believe truth to be right knowledge true knowledge whatever but here but here's an example of an instance where you might might at first believe it is, but then when you look deep, deep into it, it's not really true belief or true justified belief, knowledge. Okay, we spotted a mistake. Let's analyze it. I've never run into a real problem with an intuition being later disproven about emotion, except maybe what you said at the beginning where it might be a more complex state of combined emotions. That's the thing. That's the ultimate problem, it seems, right? You can feel ambivalent and we can, you can feel happy and sad, uh -huh. right? Like, uh, let's say a relative had a really good life, but they're dead. You're at yeah, their yeah. funeral, you remember all the beautiful things, blah, blah. Like, the problem was with emotions come up when they're combined and that's it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not like, oh, I feel this type of fear, this type of fear. It's whatever. I mean, you get it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what, what you would find interesting also is, I mean, they have to, Adolf has to study this, like, as, as his career. And so one thing you have to do if you're studying emotion is separate emotion from feelings. So feelings is the subjective, I guess, report that humans can have. Uh, and since the argument is that animals also can have these states, Feelings are out of the question, and all you're analyzing are the central emotion states. That's how he defines an emotion. A central emotion state is some state of the brain, uh, or of the, of the central processing unit of whatever animal it is, 
that that is corresponding to to a fear and actually surprisingly we hear a lot about like the amygdala is fear the this is this this is this we actually don't know the central emotion state for any emotion at all like it's sort of distributed throughout the brain we can't have that high definition analysis of it also it's hard to temporally some things happen before and some things happen after so like an acute reaction of fear that's the entirety of time (laughs) you just described time temporally (laughs) temporally Uh, if and only if but you know like you freeze so there's a physical reaction first and then some physiological reactions come a bit later like you start i'm sure a million other things happen in the brain for sure yeah so it's hard but Yeah, yeah, yeah you don't need to say it's ad hoc yeah, and the problem, by the way, explain what ad hoc is, but the problem also is that localizational list theories aren't good. Like, they're just not yeah, good. Yeah. The brain comp, like, you know, we know this from, for example, if people lose a part of the brain that we initially thought was for purpose A, they just gain back the function somehow. So the brain is really a complex mechanism that, like, if it loses one gear, Three gears are going to shift and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I would have two two things to say about that. Well, first of all, there are some parts of the brain, like for aphasias, like Broca's area and Wernicke's area, that if you lose, you lose that ability and you lose it for good. But it's it does seem like those are exceptions. And especially for complex mechanisms like emotions and thoughts and, oh, yeah. you know, some of these actions, it, it's inevitably the whole brain. But our technology is really not that good to like have a high definition image of all the neurons and well uh, defined in in terms of time. So we we sort of have to do that. Uh, Ad hoc, for those that were wondering, means that it's not a real thing that I have before I have the emotion and I say, okay, this is fear. And then I have the emotion and you're like, oh yeah, that was fear you create it after the instance. After each and every instance, you create a category to describe what just happened. I guess that's a good description. Yeah. And that should also signal you that that's not what emotion is, but whatever. And yeah, I I think also one of my problems with that is, I mean, I guess for me, it would be my final thought, is the intercultural consistency. How do you account for universal emotions right, right if we were all kind of like socialized into them i don't i just simply just don't get it right it does seem like there's a lot of homogeneity yeah or well, you you look two thousand years ago plato is still using words like happy and sad like how can it be so temporally consistent if it's not evolutionary whatever and yeah obviously the wittgensteinian view is fine in the sense that yes it exists Yes, there's not a 100% direct correlation between it and reality, but just as is mentioned in the paper, so is our view of the stars. Like, if you take that as the golden... Standard? Gold standard of... Gold's gym? Gold's gym of, uh, you know, sciencing or objectivity... you know, through Descartesian doubt, we can also figure out that there's not a 100% correlation between our perception of it and reality, and that's just something you have to accept. And the only question is, is emotion like that to, to exactly the same extent? Well, no, it's probably more, even more subjective, just because the brain is complex and social things are more complex than stars. Like My, my therapist is, is telling me, you know, I got to talk to more people and it's not, it's not like easy. It's a, you know, long-term task. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I get uncomfortable when I talk about this. So, um, <laughs> all right. Well, let, do we, do we move on? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it's what? fine, dude. It's fine. Whatever. Like we read that. That's cool. It, it confirms as so many things do more than I, that I advance in life. It just confirms my strong stance on something like is it i think that that's a psychological phenomenon right for all all you psychology fans 
when you hear a weak counter argument to your point of view, your point of view gets stronger, right? More radical. That's a thing in social psychology, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, well, there, there you go. I'm yeah, more radical. I'm on Adolf's side. Let, let that be known. <laughs> the thing is, I think we pretty much agree on uh, the whole... We pretty much agree on everything we just talked about, right? It's just in the way you present your argument versus the way I talk about it, right? Like I, when think I, said so. I think so, yeah. Yeah, when I said technically she's right, you agree with me. Technically yeah, like every, yeah, every time she said it, it feels like she was like raising her, raising her finger and saying, well, actually, and I was like, yeah, dude, yeah. If you look in an encyclopedia, objectivity means what you're saying, but also there's human life and, you know, normality. Okay, so the end of education. So maybe it's fresher in your mind than it is in mine. That rhymed. <laughs> so excited. Okay. Too excited. Okay. Um, you can maybe try to summarize and I'll try to cling on to your points. Okay. So Postman talks about education, obviously, in his book, The End of Education. But he, I think the most important thing to establish from the start is he talks a lot about gods. The first two chapters are named the necessity of gods and some gods that fail. Respectively. And also, he, he just says this. So he wants to solve the education crisis and there are two problems to solve. The, the mechanical one and the metaphysical one. Engineering one and the metaphysical yeah, one. Yeah, engineering one. And so the engineering one is how are we going to place the tables in, a, in the classroom and where are they going to study? How and many the, pages per week? How many? Uh, yeah, and the metaphysical one, well, which is actually what people concentrate on usually. Mm -hmm. But the metaphysical one is the real problem. Why do we teach? Yeah. And well, the, essentially he discusses it in the first two chapters, respectively. <laughs> and so the, the important thing to establish is that he equates God with <clears throat> narrative, with sort of meaning. Most importantly, narrative. So what's the story? What's the story that guides your education? In the first chapter, he discusses, well, the necessity of gods and how we need a story. We need a reason to live, but also for education, to teach kids. And so he argues, he, he says a lot, assuming we know about stuff. Did, did you get that feel? Like he, he doesn't go into explaining or quoting he just assumes that we know this and yeah, agree with we're him. in with the culture but he, he's also super knowledgeable he's quoting left and right yes and so he says that when education and a lot of schools were with religion and god with a big g because that's another distinction the the narrative he's talking about are little gods that guide for some time not god the god of religion but when schools were uh, like Christian, let's say, they didn't have the metaphysical problem. Th those problems were solved. They knew what they were doing. The job of the schools were to educate people to be pious and to, to, be, to be good Christians. And that's what they did. And then you could resolve the engineering issues and you had no larger problems. But obviously this is going away. People are less and less religious. And so, I mean, I guess anything else to say about chapter one? No, not that I remember, no. Some Gods That Fail, Chapter 2, I think sort of discusses this with the rise of this, uh, with the rise of science, which is another God of sorts, another narrative that, you know, if the God before the, the narrative was, I want to be pious, I want to get to heaven, I want to be a virtuous person, now with science, the narrative is sort of, I want to know the world in a detailed way and find out what it's all about. And prayer becomes proof, as he says. Prayer becomes proof. Hmm. He didn't say that. I just made it up. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> and is that the current God that's active right now? Well, no, right? Because what he says later on, but... And it feels prophetic it's that the god of consumership right is the one that's kind of has taken over 
I don't think he necessarily says it's taken over. Maybe he does mention it at some point, but it didn't stick with me that he's giving one god more power than the other. What he is saying is that the god with the big G has unfortunately been defeated. Uh, he, he says, at least it's what Nietzsche said before he went crazy, right? Something like that. By the way, I didn't know that the last 11 years of Nietzsche's life, he just kind of collapsed and just never <clears throat> never was coher coherent anymore. It brings so much more coolness to him. Yeah, but that sentence stuck with me too because yeah, yeah. the last thing he said before he went crazy, sort of exemplifying what happens when there is no God. You know, if he was the most acutely aware of the fact that God is dead, then it makes sense that he would go crazy and not have a narrative to guide his life and just not know what to do. Or he's not dead, and it was his punishment for saying that. Okay, so um, essentially there are three new gods that arise. Science, which have has defeated kind of the god with the big G in a way because... I guess but because it has a better explanation of the physical world. Yeah, it just he, fits he our get, intuition. He gets yeah. into like religion, let's say Judeo-Christian religions, or Which, not, by the not way, even. He, he he seems very religious. Like he's a American purebred god. He's old, also. Yeah, yeah. And and the story of God with a big G, he acknowledges that it has a less vivid and you know accurate explanation of the physical world i don't know of the history of the earth but it has a narrative story that guides us in our life even though it's not objectively true as science is yeah the, then the other two gods are consumership and economical utility utility which i mean i would conflate the two but Consumership and economy. It seems that one mm, is serving the other in a way. But yeah, yeah, one leads to the other. It doesn't really matter. What he's arguing for is that both are futile and ultimately won't bring us pleasure, but it is the narrative that we've told ourselves. And we know this from psychology. Maybe you remember the name of the guy who was essentially at the forefront of making America a consumership society. And he says that we must shift... America from a needs society to a wants society. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. I don't know who it was, though, yeah. So what's interesting in that for me is that it's all by design. Like, it's not, it's not accidental, right? Okay, well, what was accidental in a way is that when humans didn't have science, they had to explain absolutely everything in a way with the information that they had at that point, right? Yeah. Okay, they turned to the god with a big G, and that's cool. More and more physical causes have, well, physical effects have physical causes, and we discover them. So more and more science takes over. There is a certain tipic, tipping point where if you had to choose, one of them just provides more answers in concrete ways and not like just blind faith kind of way. Yeah, yeah. There's a safety in that. There's a safety in the other one as well, but there's a safety in that. And so that happens. But based on those, on this new God, that kind of did arise inevitably, but accidentally, in a way, if you know what I'm saying, the other one was designed, right? Because, okay, once we're past this, we've talked about this in the past that for whom is the hedonistic idea of heaven, right? Any conception that you want when you're describing heaven. Only good things, only good interactions, no human hardship, no whatever. For whom is that heaven? And the answer is medieval peasants, right? Like, okay, who wants to lay on the couch with a button to spike their dopamine, right? Which we have now. Because they actually didn't have that. Yeah, exactly. So... Obviously, you're working 16 hours in the field all day. What's the most desirable state? Well, where we are now. Get to where we are now. What's the more de most desirable state? Having the motivation to work 16 hours a day, something like that, right? So obviously, like that's just yeah. The, and as Phil said, that's the way to reconcile it. Heaven is whatever the best state for you is. Whatever isn't the 
Well, whatever isn't those two things in a way. Like, if you dig deep enough, it mustn't be those two things. Right. Because you might think you want one, but it's not going to be that. You're going to want the other one when, you <laughs> when you're there. So, yeah, that's a little bit of the humor of the human condition. Let me not get too commotion on you guys. So, now that we have this society with answers and with resources and who's pretty much well off if you compare it to anything a thousand years ago, where do we go from here? How do we keep them at bay if it's not, if it's not... Who's they? Society. Okay. <laughs> how do we keep them at bay? Yeah. Well, yeah. How, how do you keep these people at bay? Because when you have a god, you have a moral code. Yeah. When you have science, the more it takes over, the more you're like, well, what is morality really? Like, can we doubt this? And okay, so at bay from what? That's just, I don't know. Like calm, like from from breaking a moral code because they're like if you think it in fully scientific terms, death is just part of the life cycle. So why not just go around killing everyone? Isn't that your point of view? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right, but then there's How philosophy. Do we keep but then at bay? that's yeah, yeah. next level. But whatever. So how do you keep people at bay? Consumership. Right. Right. Like. If you stay in your pod and go to work like a beautiful little ant and invest, you're going to get the car that you wanted in five years. So just, you know, just keep it, you know, keep it cool. And you want that car. You desperately want that car. Yeah. And you, we also need to convince people of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's pretty successful. Yeah. So I don't remember the the exact objection Neil gives for consumership and economic utility obviously I, I i think i didn't pay attention to them because to me it was self-evident that those gods are going to fail well the god of economic utility the objection is it can't guide education so th the argument is okay you're going to go to school and after school you're going to get a solid good job and you're going to make money and you're going to contribute to society but he argues that there's actually no correlation between economic growth and uh, education level. I think mm. he says that in the period, in some period of highest economic growth, there was actually the lowest education or something like that. And, and also America being a superpower, economical superpower, it's never had really the greatest education either. So right. the, the correlation doesn't flow in either way. So yeah, education. Right, right, right. Yeah. And um, so it's a statistical counter argument, which is even more interesting than all the rest that I have to say philosophically about it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I had another thing. Oh, yeah. And he says. The jobs in the future that are going to be the most needed are jobs that aren't necessarily associated with education, with college education, let's say. Uh, waiters. Other jobs. True, true. Like 80% of the new jobs that are created aren't even the ones that... Well, I, I just said 80 for some reason. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter. But yeah, that's very interesting. So then maybe the consumership argument would be more philosophical. But in any case, we agree. It's not the way to go. Now, I thought about the following. Maybe, well, later in the book, he's obviously going to give a replacement, maybe a new god to follow. But I think... What has come out of a lot of conversations and my intuitions is that the way to fix a lot of problems in adulthood is purpose. Is definitely purpose, right? We've, we've said this a lot. Like, our scientific if we could defeat our scientific minds that need proof and just turn to God, a lot of stuff would be fixed, right? We, oh, I'm so tired. I can't get up in the morning. Okay, but does the prospect of heaven sound interesting to you? Yes. God is watching. God is watching. Therefore, you must get up and do the thing. Oh, okay. Well, that's logical. You see, it gets even logical at that point. So whatever. You, you can't like fail. You can't fail. So he was going to offer new gods at the end, the solution yeah, yeah, okay. to every problem. So for, for, for adults, that seems like the perfect fix. But I thought about this, right? We, we've both worked with kids. What keeps a kid at bay? Is it a god? Is it a purpose? Is there something deeper that you can attach him to that will 
actually always be a guide? And if so, can't that only be a parental figure? Like the fear of disappointing a parental figure, like a good quality parental figure. And if that that is the case, if you look at the statistics of secure attachment, it's not looking great. Like it's not it's it's not horrible, but it's not looking great in terms of what percentage of people actually deliver on that, right? So do, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, is there a deeper purpose that you can give a kid? Is that what their actions are based upon? No, right? Just their parents? <clears throat> that's that's kind of my solution that I just came up with. I came up with a question to ask you. What's the deeper thing that, you know, the underlying foundation of kids' actions? Well, I think the thing is, we don't see kids like this, but kids in religious families certainly get religious early and don't want to disappoint God early. So I think right, right, that's but applicable is, to kids. Is that not related to the parental side? Is it not, they don't want to disappoint God through, like, well, their God parents the through God. God is the father. But if you just look at every other situation, right? If you want to universalize it, even people who don't have God in their life, wouldn't it be, I don't want to disappoint God because my parents care about God and I, want to, I don't want to disappoint my parents. And on the other side, on the scientific side, little scientists, little scientist priests, <laughs> they're like, my mom does chemistry. I must not disappoint her. <laughs> I must be a good scientist because my mom is. No, not, 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 not like that. But like, if you wanted to universalize it, I, I understand, right? Like if you see the kid who's going to church every Sunday and, you know, really aspirational about being in the church, church choir or holding a candle for the, the old guy, like something like that is actually important to them. But so is baseball to the non-religious mm. person, right? So is performing in baseball and seeing uh, their parents proud. Right, so, and we know this through through Piaget's cognitive uh, evolution theory of, well, not cognitive evolution theory, but cognitive development theory of children. There are big qualitative shifts between phases. So, sure, at 16 years old, you might, you know, feel this either apathy or disturbance in your, in your purpose and take on this absurdism view or nihilism view. And the remedy to that would certainly be, I can say with certainty, it would be something like purpose, philosophy, religion, whatever. Is that the case for kids? Here's the thing. I, I would argue that throughout your life, it's always about, sort of about other people. It just shifts. Like when you're young, it's about your parents. As you grow up, it gets more and more about your peers right you want to impress people by being good at sports by doing this doing this you don't want to be a loser in adolescence that becomes even more obvious and then in adulthood you have to find a, a spouse get married you want to do things for your kids it's always about people or if like for you it's about society whatever it's always about other people and that's are, are you are you on the lookout for a new god is that what you're saying like what no. is the god that guides us no, it's just, I know that what he's probably about to offer, well, f first of all, if he's about to offer a reversal to the old God, I think that's going to work for adults. If he's about to offer a new God, I'm very interested. A reversal to the old God? Well, a return to religion. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but my, my, my biggest concern with what you said, the fact that it's all about other people, is that if you see the people who are at the peak of purpose... So people who actually, for whom, you know, Aristotelian virtue is important for, or people who are completely religious, okay, they're going to follow through on their guidelines, even when no one's watching. God is always watching, right? So even when it's hidden, there are no cameras, the store clerk has walked away, they're going to look at that packet of cool ranch chips that is so desirable and they're not going to steal it. Obviously a very relatable scenario. I'm, I'm a pretty relatable guy. So they're going to, in their head is going to be like, no, 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 I must be virtuous. And in the most profound way, <clears throat> it's going to make them feel right because they took the right decision. No one was watching. Sure. In the religion side, God is watching. In the virtue side, being the best version of yourself is itself the reward. 
So in both yeah. cases, they're going to do things at some point for themselves only. So if I were to say this, sure, yes, we are social creatures, it's inevitable, but on the deepest sense, it feels like it's for us. So that's why I think there's such a big shift where kids, you know, if kids, uh, I don't know, everyone's walked away, somebody forgot, forgot their lunchbox, and later on they have a snack to take after lunch, and then they see the mini Oreos in someone's lunch bag, and they're the last in the lunchroom, they could steal it. I don't think they're going to have the thought of, if they knew they, they couldn't get caught, right? Like everyone's in class. I don't think they're going to have the thought of, I must do this because it's the right thing to do. They might revert to the, I don't want to disappoint my parents. I'm going to get in trouble for this. Some things like that are, that are outwardly. But if you give them a confirmation that no one's ever going to find out, they're just going to be like, I want my Oreos, man. But yeah, on but, an adult side, yeah. that's not going to be the case, right? I'm still thinking rare, rare Freud metaphor. I still think it's like the super ego subconscious part that's so deeply ingrained within you that you when you're a kid you don't have that super ego that that's that's that strong so you, you don't have it in your subconscious it's a, a, a lot of it is my parents are here i need to act right when they are here but as you grow up you know expectations from your parents from your friends from society and everything become so internalized that on the surface level it's I want to be virtuous. I need to do this because it's a good thing to to do. But if you go one one level higher, what's motivating that is, let's say, what I was thinking is, I need to maintain this habit of virtue because mm. if I act like this now, I'm gonna act like this in other situations, and it They're will hurt find people, out right? Something like that. That's a good theory. I think. Yeah, I think that discussion it seems beyond the scope, but it's it doesn't really because ultimately what we're trying to determine I, I is I love beyond the scope. You're just like beyond the scope and you don't like don't talk about something. Well, that, uh, it's that not wasn't... it's not an attack at you. It's just like so many papers are just like it's beyond the scope of this it's paper. It's true. It and is a, an a lot, easy tool to use. It is true. A lot and a lot of, of it is beyond the scope, yeah, but yeah. But it's it's not really in the sense that yes, we are trying to find find out the most fundamental motivation of humans and you know Philosophy hasn't done this in a couple thousand years. If we had one or two more hours of podcasts, we'd probably get to the bottom of it. But uh, <laughs> I think even if we're not to have that debate, for me, the, the real question here, and I think I know your answer, but the real question is, whatever it is for us, adults, is it the same? Can't we say it's the same for ch children? And I think we both agree that it's not because I'm saying it's not because for them pleasing themselves, well, in the virtue sense or God is always watching doesn't really exist. And what you're saying is that the outwardly manifestation desire of, to, oh. to, you know, be the most virtuous self and like appear as such d hasn't been internalized yet. So we're both saying that there's more than, you know, I'm, I'm a, I must follow God's footsteps and therefore I will go to class even if it's boring and I want to play on my iPad, right? It's, it, there needs to be something more. So you're arguing that there needs to be something more? I think kids need a different God than, than adults do. That's what I'm saying. And I think that God, and I just came up with that theory like 15 minutes ago, it's a good parent, like a good parent figure that they actually want to please. And that's how, what he was referring to earlier is that about, what, 60% of parenting is secure? I think it is, yeah. So it's not that bleak. Yeah, but still 40% of people have insecure attachments to their parents. And it is a good predictor of a lot of psychopathology. So <laughs> it makes sense that, you know, not having this narrative, not having this, I, I, at least initial step, right? You you have to evolve from I don't I, I can't disappoint my parents and people that don't, for people that don't that's problematic. Yeah, but maybe you're right. Yeah, I think it's it's it makes sense that that be their first our first god. Yeah, and it feels like 
it could be a direction that Neil takes because he's the, the you know the religious of the religious mind and therefore maybe conservative and therefore maybe family values because this is something you know some somebody that you know a figure on the internet says 20 years ago they, there wouldn't be school shootings just because you can't put that on your family name <laughs> right like that's in, the thing the like ultimate in, thing. in honor cultures yeah people yeah. don't care anymore for that right their parents can't say you are a x family name you will not do this like this yeah, is that going sounds to ridiculous be now we see it in exactly. movies and it's exactly for us yeah you you don't you don't mess with the changuetas you know like stuff like that yeah, yeah, yeah that has value and it holds a lot of power and it has lost its power and it was it was intertwined with the religious side but family values can come back without the religion coming back to it right like yeah yeah your family name mattering your reputation but i get i i'm saying that in an idealistic sense but if you think about every culture that does right like even think about latino cultures that just you know yeah they, they go to church they believe in god they have the sense of community the family matters uh do are italians religion or religious i mean Different people are religious. You know what? That, that might be more, more of a mafia thing where it could be disconnected from religion, right? Like, oh, this is my name. I shall defend it. There doesn't need to be any Christ involved in it. What do, what do you think? Where do you think he's going? Who Who's who's a new God? What's the proposal? You, you think is that, that is that what you think is going to happen, by the way? Like, do you... Okay, that's my theory, but it might not even be that. Like... Is he gonna give us a new god that that DJ children must follow? I don't know if he can. I feel I feel like this sort of uh this sort of god this sort of direction that people get sort of just happens and it's very hard to predict, right? You see what I'm saying? It's it, it will just happen, like yeah, sure. Right now it's uh, it may be ideologies that go this way or that way. He talks about in the 20th century the the god of communism, fascism, and Nazism, right. Should we should we keep reading it and like just do a follow up on next week? I think we should. We can do two chapters at a time if it feels appropriate and yeah, just I do. I don't want to do more if we can progress through them. Yeah, just because it feels like a lot of what we've been saying is based on an idea he brought up, but not much of what he's writing. Because again, we didn't even think about the the intermediary gods of Nazism, fascism, and communism. Right, we didn't get into a lot of the nitty-gritty that, that he talks about, I guess because it's an overview, the first two chapters of what's about to come, and a lot of explanation, and so we just talked about what the gist we got. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's also interesting that it is narratives that rule the world, that rule the world. and for a, thousand, well, you know, a couple thousand years, it was the, the narratives of you know, the Christian religion, and narratives involve a lot of things. It involves... I mean, who am I following? It involves, okay, what am I going to be doing that confirms my faith in it? Right? Like the religious practices. He mentions that adherence to narratives takes some specific actions, right? I, I, at some point, it just didn't I don't stick remember. with me. Okay, well. Okay, here's a funny quote. If, you, if we knew, for example, that our students wish to be corporate executives, would we train them to be good readers of memos, quarterly reports, and stock quotations, and not bother their heads with poetry, science, and history? I think not. Everyone who thinks, thinks not. So, uh, essentially a big argument about education that he has is that it must be generalized at the beginning and for the longest time. Now, I don't know about you, but for me... By the end of high school, I had this strong impression that, look, I already know the direction I'm going to take, right? Like, I got this math thing on lock. Can we please just eliminate history and art from my curriculum and let me, let me be who I am? Yeah, well, you didn't go into math. Right, but it's still... I guess I did take a scientific side, a pseudo-scientific pseudo side uh, of psychology. And art and history certainly didn't help me with it. So, what do you think about his argument that education should be as general and as inclusive of, you know, 
what's the so- social sciences and other sciences, actual science? I, I don't know how much emphasis he really actually puts into that. It's not like an argument he makes for a chapter, but... Well, he does spend a few fa- pages saying like, okay, if we know our kids aren't going to be that, we're, we're not going to train them to be astronauts from when they're 13, right? Well, for me, the necessity of general education, and here we can talk about the engineering part of it. When does it end? To what level do we need to teach general knowledge? It's necessary to get a general education because a kid doesn't know what he's going to do later. And as he develops, as he sees different fields, it allows him to explore different things and choose where to specify. But he needs the exposure to all of these things. Yeah. So have you ever heard about the the view that things that are that we might not remember that happened in our life may affect us? Yeah. Yeah. Like the unconscious and stuff. I just wanted to phrase it in the most ridiculous way of the, the Freudian cause, where it's obviously obvious. Um, obviously obvious. Um, so this is, I think I might have mentioned it in the blog that no one reads, um, except, yeah, no, except a few, a select few people that I really like. So that you might be saying, oh, when am, when am I going to use the quadratic formula in my day? You know, the, the meme that went around a few few years ago. Hey, it's been seven years since high school and I still haven't used the the quadratic formula. But mathematical thinking and the things that it makes you do are useful on a subconscious level. And especially, you know, people who can't, you know, I don't know, multiply their taxes and know exactly how much they're going to pay before going to the cashier. I think most people, though. Yeah, it is most people, unfortunately. Despite the... Some people by the end of high school being like, oh, I mean, th- this math is way too advanced for, like, I already know what I'm going to be doing in my life, right? And to a certain extent, I got to look at myself and be like, okay, well, is that is that this, the case for the history and art that I wanted to stop way before it stopped? Right. For me? And, the, well, obviously my answer is no, because... We were 17 and we had to draw stuff. Like, that's not useful in any subconscious or Freudian way. Okay. And I was rated on that and it actually affected my my grades. Like, just no. History, obviously another discussion. Uh, well, the way it's tested by circling answers or writing in dates and in, in, in holes and text. Right, right. Yeah, it's not going to be subconsciously affecting me. Math with giving me a, me new problems to solve that I must adapt to and adapt my mathematical thinking, sure. Maybe including a logic class. That would help a lot of people. That would maybe fix a few problems in society. But another thing that I thought about is how even after that, by 19, we still had phys ed classes, mm. right? And I was like, well, I mean... By this point, surely it would be in my hands, right? Surely you could just kind of transfer that task to me. I'm not going to be evaluated on something like that. But all of those classes were centered on performance and information. Like my my professor was teaching me to breathe through my through my stomach and not through my, uh, you know, l- well, not lungs, but uh, chest, cage. right? Yeah, yeah, but like not not inflating my chest, but instead inflating my uh, my stomach and we had meditate like we had a relaxation periods and when i was 18 i was like well, what am i doing here but then when it stopped i also had a few like a, f- a few years of not going to the gym and it, i genuinely felt how bad that feels so because that's something that you're always going to have in life it feels as though that might be useful to be part of your education until late and i'm sure when you're 15, it just feels like, oh, there is literally a class where I'm going to be playing soccer, which I like, with my friends, which I like. And the combination of the two is great. And you maybe neglect the health purpose of it, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Because you're young. That's not your concern. By 18, you might be saying, okay, well, why are we still doing this? I'm in college and I don't, well, here in Canada. I'm in college. I don't even know these people. And now I have to embarrass myself at sports with them what's going on but then you look back and it's actually useful it's not for art and history so 
all I'm saying through that, all I'm saying, right, it doesn't matter, we don't have to have the debate here, is that it's, for some disciplines, it might be useful to include them until late in your general education, because they're going to th be things that affect your life. And other things, no. Yeah, I, I, I guess I agree, and we can argue about the specific level it should go up to, because the obvious argument for art and history is if someone wants to become an artist and actually put things down on an art board, you have to expose them to that passion and give them the chance. But when you're, when you're 16, 17, it's, it's like you're not going to become an artist. Probably. Yeah. And it also, yeah, it also has the same problems as with math, right? Like some people are on, on level 100 and some people are level 30. And if you make them both do the same thing, the person on the level 100 is going to make it, well, you know, you make them do a thing of the level 50, the person of the level 100 is going to be bored and do something amazing. And the person of level 30 is going to be like, why am I drawing? I'm 16 years old and I'm good at math. Like, can that, I just do things in life? That's another reason education sort of feels wrong is because it's, it's, I think it's not well adapted. I think yeah. for some people, they need so much more. They could do so much more. Yeah. And when you have one set level, it, I guess it's good for some people who, for, for who do you, for how much of the population do you think that the level of school is good and makes, you know, challenges them enough and makes them progress well enough? Because there are people under that who find well, school way It's too a hard. normal curve, I think. It's, it's a, a normal, normal curve. curve. It has to be like 60%. 20% are struggling because it's way too easy and 20% are struggling because it's way too hard. How, how do you solve that? Would you have like a categorical cutoff where if you're above, if you're performing this well at school, you have, well, there are those things, right? In Canada, we didn't get exposed to them much, but like advanced placements class, advanced placement classes in, in the US. Yeah, I've thought about this, like the mechanical problem again. I would maybe do something like okay the bottom 20 percent you give them an additional hour that they have to stay after school just because you're not going to make it in life if you're bad at high school okay and, and in high school it would seem like so much but realistically it just builds good habits like you, yeah you're going to need to be that guy that works harder yeah if, if you're genuinely harder, so. just less good at life you're going to need to put in more time to get the same results as others and it's okay if you don't finish at 3.30, but it's set at 4.30 and you can just play, go play with your friends afterwards. So I would make it a mandatory thing if they're, they're behind. And for the people at the top, I would push them more because I know there's a possibility. But again, I would push them more and scout them to just be placed in the next year above. Right. Like, I think you and I could have made that if someone just reached out, like... I probably could have been a year ahead in high school if someone just told me the mechanics of what it... Like exactly the paperwork to fill out. Yeah, like, okay, that. what do I have to do? Pass the final exams? Okay, give me the material. Because in high school, we didn't really even have the, the textbooks. It, we were given, like, papers gradually uh, to, to learn stuff, and we were taught stuff in class. If I were given the textbook and I were told, look, you can be a year above if in a month you pass the final exam of, of your year. Well, in math, chemistry, like, okay. yeah. stuff like that, we did have textbooks. Yeah, we did have textbooks, that's but, true. But the, I think the bigger problem wasn't, like, we could have done that if we weren't lazy, but we were also lazy. I think that... We were. The, I think the education system in some way sort of supports that for some reason. I, I don't know. Like it, It's because we were in the top 20%. We had to perform things at half our level. That's how you instill laziness, right? If we had to catch up to people who are a year above to us, we would probably be in the middle of the distribution. Probably not. We would probably still be in the top 20%. doesn't matter. But, you know, it, it, yeah, it's the, how it works. Yeah, yeah. So the problem is, you know, let's say, let's, say we, let's say we were good enough to be in the grade higher. They have no real proof of that because we didn't get 100 on all our exams. We got at least 90 on all our exams, which isn't yeah, and that like, amazing. because we didn't care. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you detect that exactly? It's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. You need I mean, a, like a teacher to spot you and, and say, oh, yo, this guy's like, he's lazy, but he got potential. Yeah. And I think teachers who are good and have experience can spot those students. And I'm sure it's, it's quite easy, right? If just the way in which you converse with a teacher, or if you're always the one 
like they're introducing new materials, right? And you're always the one spotting their mistakes on the board, which, you know, we've probably both done that. You just spot an inconsistency. Sure, it's new material to you, but you're following the, the train of thought and you're spotting a new consistency. It's crazy how naturally bad some teachers are at teaching. And they just went into this career for some reason and then they're, they're there teaching people. Yeah, I mean, when it's the career, it's not even the wild part for me. For me, it's the people who scout others to be a teacher. Like, that's someone's job. Not, not, not to be a teacher. Like, that's fine. You can just be bad at conveying material, but actually be really good at that material. Like, it's not wild to assume that you would think you're good at teaching if you're good at the material. Right? Like, I'm good at math, therefore I will be a good Yeah, but what I had in teacher. mind was, like, we're, like, elementary school teacher everyone's good at elementary school material right that's that is sad but the people whose job it is to accept those people as teachers and for some student well not even some students right for some teachers every single student in the class can point to them and say hey like i don't know much this is all new material for me but that is a bad teacher right the 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 fact that that is accepted is yeah but you're, you're saying like the people that choose these teachers the thing is the process is there's not enough teachers if you meet these criteria come <laughs> teach you know that is very sad and uh, that's maybe part of the again the the mechanical problem so okay we know what we're reading next we're gonna follow up on this uh neil's gonna give us a new god and we're also gonna follow it just as an experiment i guess that would that would be smart <laughs> let's, let's just make an experiment for the next two years let's follow a new god um <laughs> Yeah, whatever whatever Neil has written down there. <laughs> so okay, uh, figured it out. Huh? For the first paper, I feel good, and for this, okay, okay. It was an overview, yeah. Okay, three, two, one, nine. eight point five. Okay, okay. We can so, go nine. Thanks all for listening. It's been a Thinking Bros. Uh, go to thinkingbros.com for more information, or contact us at thinkingbros at gmail dot com. I have been Chris for now. It's as of right now, six, uh, January 2024, and that is Alex. Like, right, and then we'll see you next week. Bye.